0: did you ever read the book Attached? It talks about protesting, how a child protests if they feel disconnected. And the protest is whining, screaming, yelling, right? right? And then within like the 20s, 30s, the whole push was like, do not give in to that child in their protests. Like they need to create these strong people that can manage their own emotional regulation. And then now we've gotten to the idea where it's like, no, no, no. Now I was thinking about protest and evolution and being like, we're all protesting right now to find connection. And and we think that's wrong. We're thinking that we're weak based
1: on Yes, that. yeah, yeah, yes. I don't think we're the only people making this observation, but that we're really experiencing evolution mm. in that the more the more society evolves, the more it changes, the, the less hands-on, hand to mouth lifestyles we live, mm. the more time we have to notice and experience things, the more complex our experience of emotions get, but we don't have the language for it. That's what the pandemic has shown. Mm -hmm. People literally coming into therapy and saying, I have feelings, like literally, I have a lot of feelings, I don't know what to do with. And our therapists making these observations like, I'm teaching feelings 101. So that's- that's
2: About to enter a whole new phase. Hey, it's Luke. This is Range, Range of Care, episode four. In just a couple days, at 11.59 p.m. on Friday, the mask mandate will officially be lifted in Washington, Oregon, and California, and it's creating some understandably complicated feelings. I have complicated feelings, (laughs) extremely complicated feelings. So when Saturday morning rolls around, we will all be expected in one form or another to enter a new phase of life, not just pandemic life, Every aspect of life. The asterisk will sort of go away. The last two years have been clouded under a Barry Bonds-ish asterisk, like whatever happens here. uh, There's been some performance enhancing drugs. But now there is a sort of governmental and certainly societal feeling that, okay, it's time to return to normal. How long that will last, who knows. But it certainly feels more final than when we opened up last year at around this time or a little bit later and people understandably don't know how to feel. I don't know how to feel about it. I'm both extremely excited for the potential to return to normal. I am also feeling weirdly anxiety-ridden. I've never had COVID. I took good precautions, but I haven't been a complete shut-in. There's always this desire to pin down your anxiety, know exactly where it's coming from so you can maybe get rid of it, isolate it and get rid of it, but it's just kind of, it lives in the air, at least for me. And it's really tough to navigate that, alongside the hope that I also feel, which has its own complicated set of signifiers and and cultural tie-ins. Like, I feel guilty when I feel hope because I know there are so many people around me who don't feel hope. Like, am I a traitor to those people or am I somehow not standing in solidarity with people who have a rougher time than I'm having with all this stuff by even feeling hope? And while this discussion we're about to have is not going to be about the politics of the pandemic, let me just say that upfront: no interest in rehashing that. But these feelings we have sort of lock us into sides or that that can be the perception, right? And so does my hope at what might come from this end of masking societally, culturally, developmentally for kids, does that somehow put me in league with people that I have been opposed to for safety reasons And on the other hand, I have plenty of people in my life, people I really love, people I really care about who have chosen not to get the vaccine, but they still believe the disease is real and they've used masking, they've used social distancing, they've shut themselves away to protect themselves from something they recognize as a real harm, even if they don't believe that the cure that was on offer was for them. So I imagine those people might be having similarly intense feelings of apprehension even though they have been maybe more politically aligned with the anti-vax movement, which is obviously aligned with the reopen movement. Those are discrete ideologies that have been allies, to be clear. Those, that is not one unified ideology. I'm bringing all of this up because if the beginning of the pandemic was marked by everybody coming together in a society-wide attempt to keep everybody safe, as safe as possible, and again, people, countries communities did this better or worse but that was the feeling worldwide we're all gonna lock down and get through this the end of the pandemic or at least this phase of the pandemic i think is going to be marked by intensely personal journeys back we started off in the same place but we have all not ended up anywhere near the same place i feel like i'm in a different place day to day and so when we were planning the next range of care episode This one got bumped way up the list. And then when the mask mandates got lifted, it was like, okay, we've got to go now. Meg and Ingrid, they'll talk about this in a second. They've seen this coming in their clinical practices. And we wanted to offer this as a way of at least starting the conversation and centering our intensely subjective personal experiences in how this might all unfold. Make's going to make this disclaimer in a second. I'm going to do it again. This is not therapy, obviously, but it is a discussion about mental health at a truly vital time. We are at a crossroads as a nation, as a world, and many of us find ourselves personally at a crossroads. So how do we all individually, collectively begin to make our way back? All of that and more coming up. some trust falls do we want to do some uh, (laughs) vocal exercises
1: all right so I want to start today's conversation with a question one that I think many of us are contemplating in one way or another how in the world does everyone at the same time unpack from a pandemic it's a profoundly important question during a profoundly important time And I've spent the last few weeks watching and listening to the world as it contemplates a series of decisions that, when made, will once again shift the ground beneath our feet. We are tired of change. We are pandemic fatigued. We crave predictability. We want connection unfettered by mandates and limitations. We want to be done. But if the question is, how in the world does everyone at the same time unpack from a pandemic, then the answer is, they don't. Here's the thing. Public health-driven mandates are, for the most part, a one-size-fits-all kind of happening. Because in an emergency, we are not pausing to consider all the angles, to ask all the questions. And I think at some level, we all get this. No one running out of a burning building is going to turn around and say, Hmm, do you run out or do I run out? We just all go. We can't answer the questions of who and and when and why. We can't use hindsight in these moments because there are too many things to take into consideration at a time when we don't have time to do that, which is why we're not going to unpack those pieces here. But what we are going to talk about is the journey back. What happens for all of us when the world starts lifting mandates and shifting from pandemic to endemic will be a uniquely one size does not fit all type of journey. My name is Meg curtin Raybear. I'm a psychotherapist, co-owner of Wellness Therapy Spokane and a longtime mental health advocate. This is Range of Care, a series of conversations exploring the intersections of our mental health, the biology of human emotion our bodies' responses, and the social, cultural, political, and environmental happenings in our communities. Today, we're going to talk about pandemic fatigue, our bodies, and the unpacking of what happens next. Joining me is repeat co-host Ingrid Price, child psychotherapist and owner of Giving Tree Wellness, a member of core counseling, an advocate, a mom, a sister, and a lover of all things chocolate. Ingrid,
0: welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. I'm very excited to talk about this intriguing, wonderful opportunity.
1: Me too. Before we get started, just a quick reminder. This podcast is not therapy. It's not intended to replace therapy for anyone in any way. Sometimes parts of our conversations are raw. They can be intense and triggering. Please, as you're listening, take care of yourself. Take a break. Stop listening if you need. Listen to your body. So I can see some of you shaking your heads when we talk about this idea that unpacking from a pandemic is going to be complex, that it's not one size fits all, and so maybe that idea doesn't fit for you. You're expecting to be able to return to normal without issue, and that's okay. These conversations are always intended to leave lots of space for the idea that we can all have differing perspectives and still be headed in the same direction, still care for one another. We've been talking about pandemic fatigue for quite a bit now, Mm -hmm. right? I think Brene Brown and Amy Cuddy came out with pandemic flux syndrome how many months ago and sort of hit everybody. Yes, that's where I am. That's what's going on for me. But that didn't mean it stopped. Naming it was helpful, but we are still experiencing that fatigue. And I guess I want to start our conversation with what does it look
0: like now? What are we seeing Right. I was going to jump in on that. Um, Not everybody knows what to do. We want to have this. Okay, mask mandate is done. Everything is good. Go back. And um, Glennon O'Doyle recently said COVID is killing us mentally because no one is showing us how to adjust our expectations of ourselves or others. We are killing ourselves trying to make things work like they used to work in the old world and we just can't. We cannot make things work, but it feels like we aren't allowed to say that because no one is brave enough to say, no, this cannot be done right now. Just be easy on yourselves. And that hit me because I said, wow, we can't go back to a normal way of life because we've experienced so much internal change, external change, um, expectations of what is expected of us emotionally, just the absolute idea that we are pushing ourselves past any capacity that we've ever had to go before.
1: Well, it's the idea that we're surviving. Mm. I I believe we've talked about this before, but I think that the tricky bit about all of this is traditionally surviving something is a short-term experience, right? We have a car accident. Our whole entire nervous system has a reaction to that. We don't feel well for maybe a couple of days, a couple of weeks, but it it ends. It wraps up, Mm -hmm. right? And this is the case for almost every single stressor that we experience, but this has been prolonged.
0: It's for- it's chronic. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's chronic trauma, right? It's it's multiple ruptures with very little repair. Right, right. And what
1: happens to the body when that's the exposure?
0: You tired, Meg? I'm tired, and I think <laughs> <laughs> did we say that? I think I said that. We're done. We're done. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and so. Now, I think yesterday, it's always interesting because we pick these subjects and then inevitably I see something in the news where I'm like, that's why we're talking about this. And Mm -hmm. so I had seen a headline, Denmark is rolling back all of its mandates. They're having a little bit of a tough time with that right now, Mm -hmm. but they did it. And sure enough, now we have a date for the end of masks. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think a lot of us are ready. But I also think a lot of us are struggling with questions that as you just pointed out, we don't know where to put. Mm-hmm. Right? So I know that people who have children who are neurodivergent, who have trouble reading facial cues or social cues, they're probably pretty excited right now that masks are coming off. Because their kids are going to have this experience of the world that they need. Like, they're going to feel a little bit more congruent. Mm -hmm. A little bit more connected. Right. But I also know that there are parents whose children have increased anxiety, depression. They don't want to go to school. Their
0: grades are dropping.
1: Where are the conversations about how we reintegrate?
0: There's not a lot happening, to be honest. I feel like these, we're talking about, again, we're going to lift these mandates. And then everybody just kind of go about like, okay, here it is, we did it, and then I think that there's not a lot of trainings, there's not a lot of this umbrella of multi-tiered kind of information gathering that allows teachers, and we stick with the school conversation, but a lot of these teachers, administrators, and everybody have been really burnt out on what is the next step for these learners, um, and I was thinking about this a lot about the school process, especially for kids with anxiety, is that it used to be such a safe haven. And I think what mm-hmm. we've realized with these school closures and with like forced stay at home orders, quarantine and stuff like that, is that we're missing out on this secondary home for children. Um, and so the, the, a lot of kids that had that before or maybe never experienced it because they're in second grade, <laughs> and they've never had a normal school year. They're going back and they don't feel that safeness. They don't have that one teacher that they were allowed to go to on break if they were having a hard day because they had to stay within their own pods. So we're missing this huge stopgap that we felt really good right. with in the past. Right.
1: It's, it's interesting. I, I'm going to make an observation that I had thought I might hold until the end, but almost the minute we started talking, I realized needs to come out now. Throughout this process, I think one of the things that has been most profound for me to observe is that no matter what you think about how we've gone through this, no matter how you feel about masks or vaccines or immunization or any of it, 100% of the people on this planet are surviving at the same exact time. And we don't know how to talk about that. It's not okay yet in our world to, to say that and not need to have answers and solutions. So I think we don't put out there, I'm scared or I'm uncomfortable. It's interesting because in the evolution of things, we've evolved emotionally like most things that evolve there's parts that have to catch up mm. and our conversation around emotions is one of them. And the reason that this sort of came up for me is if I think about our teachers in our classrooms, they've always been safe havens. They've always been these incredible spaces. But And, and I think a lot of teachers will say they've always been therapists of a sort, mm. but not like this. It's not been their job to survive a pandemic and their own emotional experiences of it and their family's emotional experiences of it And then their classrooms as well. And how do we change that? How do we start making it okay for people to say, we don't all have this. And let's just sit for a minute and not all have this together.
0: (laughs) That's asking... (laughs) when I think of that, what you just said, it's something I continuously try to help parents understand. It's like, you have to sit in this super uncomfortable spot. It's going to feel real icky and you're going to want to get out of it because we have always been taught that if you're uncomfortable, then leave. When you are anxious, the number one coping skill is to remove, (laughs) remove the thing that's making you anxious. The snakes in the room, get out of the room. But now we're saying, you just need to sit in it and and be really uncomfortable. And what I'm recognizing is we're having a lot more conversations in therapy about the visceral reaction to these emotions. I don't know why my stomach hurts every day before school. Or I don't know why when my teacher wants to look in my homework, even though I know I did it, I'm having like body shakes and my head starts to hurt. And okay, well... (laughs) that's anxiety or you know, let's talk about that. And they're like, no, I'm not really anxious. I don't, I'm never, I'm always like this. And so we have all of a sudden reteaching like your body is also carrying right. the emotional overload, even though you think that you're compartmentalizing it Mentally and cognitively and moving through your day and checking off your boxes, your body is keeping score of all of these things that is happening. That energy has to go somewhere. You can block it in your mind, but it's still getting like sucked into your bodies. And I think that that is something that people have that evolution piece. They're like, well, but I, I'm, I'm going to work every day. I'm showing up for my family. Yeah,
1: I, We're touching on it here and I want to... I think, point out for listeners, this is something we will come back to, uh, unpack in a single episode, refer to continuously, because the more time science spends looking at personality and behavior, the more we know a couple of really core things that I think as therapists we've always seen, but, you know, I've been practicing for 20 years, and I can say Assuredly, that while I'm certain Bessel van der Kolk was researching when I was a grad student the information and the discussion about how the body keeps score literally, mm-hmm. that's his book, um, it wasn't out there. We didn't talk about it. And so even for us as therapists, there, this is n- newer information. And in picking it up when it started to become available, I would say that it has changed the way I practice because, We see it all the time. We see what happens with the body when we have an emotional experience. And I want to clarify for everyone, this is not something we can train ourselves out of, walk away from, or I don't know, I'm trying to think of another (laughs) way you might get rid of it. Hide from, you know, I talk about this all the time. You can push them away, but Negative feelings actually like to collect in dark corners Mm -hmm. until they fill the whole room. Emotions are biologically hardwired. And I'm, again, this is something huge that we will unpack in its own episode. But I think for now, as we talk a little bit about what's happening for adults and kids and what to expect as we unpack from this incredibly intense thing we've all just done together or all are continuing to do together is starting to accept that knowledge that emotions are biologically hardwired. They are there to keep us alive, to keep us connected. And quite frankly, at the root of it all, to move our genetic line forward. Mm. Right, And so they're not going
0: anywhere. <laughs> Here to stay.
2: I wonder, do you guys think, I, I had a conversation with a friend who's a youth pastor, or a, I think a youth group leader is the nomenclature these days, but he had 150 kids every Wednesday uh, pre-pandemic. And now they've got 30 who are regular. And he said everybody else, they're still in contact. They're digitally having conversations. He's still in touch with most of these kids. They're all just like, I don't even know how to do this anymore. So I'm not going to come. I want to stay connected to this community. So I wonder if like, for, you know, the fight or flight thing, we've been doing flight for two years, has that turned into, like, a a freeze away from society for, you know, I think about how deeply the idea of not selling out ingrained in my brain when I was, because I grew up during the grunge era, you know what I mean? And nobody told me that it it took me sort of thinking about this for years, and I still, every once in a while, I'm like, God, that guy just sold out. My favorite artist just sold out or whatever, and that's a stupid example, but it's the thing that's coming to mind is, like, these cultural norms that get imprinted on us when we're adolescents, right. they're still with me today, 20 years later. What, what do we think these, what's been culturally imprinted on our kids for the last two years is gonna do? Are we gonna see a bunch of people that are gonna have a hard time returning to these group activities? And what's that gonna have to look like for people who are helping those folks through a mental health journey back? Or is there a getting back?
0: Mm. So like reintegration back into this right. this past community piece. yeah. yeah it's hard. It's real hard. Um, I know that the kids that I work with, you know, just now starting to open clubs and things like that and sporting events, Mm -hmm. but really uh, more the anxious kids, the introverted kids are going to look into like art clubs and things like that, but they're starting to have them, but it's still, it's still hard to sit in a room full of other kids and be, and not have a teacher. So you're, nobody's really like kind of directing the conversation. They have to self-direct and that is very scary. Cause they, they didn't really have that ability, you know, that's kind of been taken away from them, especially if they're kind of coming in that preteen. So they're changing just in general. And they're like, I, I don't know how to sit with 10 other 12 year olds without a teacher directing the conversation.
1: I also think there are things that are different for the youth who have experienced this time that didn't happen before and may not happen after. And or, or, you know, in the future, in that we have seventh and eighth graders who are freshmen and sophomores in college. They missed certain social and emotional experiences. And what we're hearing right now, and Ingrid, I don't know if you're seeing this as well with the littler ones, but I know we're seeing this in high school and college. We're seeing these kids who are socially and emotionally kind of stuck in those earlier spaces but academically and intellectually being asked to be freshmen and sophomores in high school or college and it's confusing. That will be part of who they are. For me Luke that question really speaks to why this podcast exists in the first place. I don't think we live in a time anymore where we shouldn't be having or I don't think we ever lived in a time where we shouldn't be having these conversations frankly (laughs) but that's just me but I mean I think right now that's what feels so incredibly important to me. We have experiences like the one we are enduring right now, and we have an opportunity to talk about how emotions affect outcome because, I don't know if the rest of you were watching for the last two years, but we've had some pretty decent evidence that that's a fact, right? <laughs> we've seen it all over the place. So um, is it changing things? Yes. Do I think that there are ways we could be making that Easier? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about the example of a youth group, if the leader of the youth group has permission to say, hey, we all get to be here in whatever capacity we can, we all get to hold space for everyone else in whatever capacity they can be here, that paves, I mean, I think it's up to us as adults, Mm -hmm. frankly, to pave the way for the, the young people who have just spent the last two years in relative isolation or at least varying degrees of it
0: right? right i i like where you're going with that meg because it, it goes back to that as the adult you're giving them permission and what you're saying like in regards to them having not having the cognitive growth is that they don't know how to give themselves permission
1: exactly exactly the problem is i think that many of us as adults especially those raised by parents for whom this kind of emotional experience and context just from an evolutionary standpoint from a sort of societal standpoint you know, where we are now in terms of how we talk about, think about, and feel about things is different from 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And so part of what we see is we have a lot of adults who also need to be given
0: permission. Mm. Right. When I think about um, my generation in, you know, approaching 40 is that I was kind of grew up in this no child left behind type of (laughs) (laughs) environment. And I I don't know if, if... you know, other people are aware of that, but we were really taught, like, you will do this, and then you will do this, and then you will go to college, I don't care if you get debt, that's just what you do, you do the next thing on the list, you get a job, or, you know, you have kids, you got to do both, I mean, one without the other is really, come on, and then it was just, so now here I am as a parent, in this, going back to, like, okay, I got to do the next thing, I got to push everybody to, to move forward, I'm like, well, why, what, what, where is that coming from? <laughs> Who give, who's going to give me permission to stop right. and just be present and feel what I'm feeling? Um, and that's, you know, that's where we're really getting stuck. And that is what I hear in, in um, most of the parents that I work with is I feel stuck. I feel like I'm not doing enough for my kids to go to the youth group to do these things. Like I'm not doing the things that I, they need to be doing. And I'm like, no, you just need to sit with them. You need to hold capacity. You need to give them permission to to feel really icky.
1: And I think it's interesting because often what I see is the minute that that permission is felt, so it takes some practice, right? The first time you say, okay, I give myself permission to feel crappy right now, you're probably just going to feel crappy, Mm -hmm. right? But the more we're able to notice how we're feeling, to name it and just be like, okay, well, this sucks, but that's where I'm at right now, the faster we move through it. And so giving someone permission to not want to go often results in them being able to go. Yes. Oh, I don't have to do that? Oh, okay, I'll try, <laughs> right? Isn't that, isn't that the whole teenage mindset? I think my kids would holler at me, reverse psychology, if they heard <laughs> me say that. But whatever. Right. Um, I want to read a couple of things that were really impactful in us having this conversation today. And these are recent bits of news Research on sort of pandemic impact. Three particular things that I think are really poignant. One is that the United States is enduring the most severe increase in traffic deaths since the 1940s. And the this was something that the New York Times published in this article. It talked about anger. Mm. That the increase in anger in people is being connected to, correlated to an increase in traffic deaths. Wow. So again, if you're shaking your head while you're listening, going, you know, this doesn't happen for me. It it happens for everyone. And even if you can't articulate it, likely you can find it somewhere in your body. The other thing that's going on, and this brings us back to our kiddos, is that we're seeing um, a significant increase in concern about 90% of Americans are concerned about the well-being of the next generation and 80% of parents surveyed are concerned about their kids. Mm. Yes. So that brings us back to the question of how do we talk about that?
0: It's true. I, we were just talking about it, you and I, a couple days ago. What ha, what's happened in the last two weeks Where the influx of phone calls for mental health for kiddos. I had 25 last week alone and the hardest part is that I... I want so bad to connect, but I can't make more hours in a day. I also have to monitor myself. Like, what what is my giving capacity and listening capacity? But it's it's we're worried. We're worried and we need help as parents. We, we want to find somebody that knows what they're doing to help our children recognize these really big emotions. And I think that's the hardest part of this pandemic is really we put a lot of pressure on back onto the parents um, where we used to kind of had a village, right? We used to kind of had people that could help us or we could turn back to the school because some of these kids, they don't meet clinical levels where they need to be seen a therapist. However, they need to be having connections at the school level. They need, they, they need to just be around other people to get that feeling and that, you know, give and take. But it is impossible to do it all for parents. You can't be all of that and also take care of yourself. I mean, right. that, the burnout itself is aggressive.
2: The thing that you said, Ingrid, about, because um, again, I'm now 41, so I lived that hamster wheel as well. The I've thought a lot about, and not in the context of the pandemic until you brought it up, like the hamster wheel that I, you know, like I went, I was the first kid in my immediate family to go to college, my parents, Moved heaven and earth to allow me to go to college as a way of sort of like making a better life for me than they had themselves. I was a math major who became a philosophy major and didn't did not it until literally I was graduating and maybe even after I'm like okay so what am I going to do with this degree now? <laughs> I was just on the you know on the treadmill. I wonder how those two cultural realities for parents and kids are colliding mm-hmm. in this thing where this there's so much guilt if you feel like you're not moving forward. Thinking about how back to the the idea of the 40s and like right. The bell system in public schools was meant to train people for the factory floor when public schools were created. We're sort of from, in, in really sort of subconscious ways, cultural ways, we're trained to be productive members of society from the time we're kindergartners, probably. Mm-hmm. And, and then that's only gotten worse in the last, you know, since the neoliberal turn and, and everything is just, you have to be moving forward. We have to be productive members of society or we're worthless. I'm sure some part of this ties into the homelessness debate we're currently having in our city about the value of people's lives in general. That's a really interesting thing to think about the way the culture we were all raised with Mm. and those norms are running up against what we're able to do as adults and also how that's being sort of
0: dealt with or not dealt with by kids. I I tell parents all the time, you only know what you know. It's never too late to not know, but... You're going to go off of, you know, how your parents were. That is an intergenerational attachment. And you're going to run into a big giant wall right now because there's not the opportunities to do that. And so you have to rewrite the way you handle emotions. You have to rewrite the way you handle um, shame-based parenting, which was a big thing in the 80s and 90s. And always probably. (laughs) But the the push was like, you know, uh, don't disappoint me. And so now we're struggling as parents. And I, I include myself in that, absolutely. But I, I, it's what I see in practice is this massive amount of guilt that we're not doing enough or we're doing too much. I shouldn't be sending them to practice in school. that is, That can be unethical. I shouldn't be doing these things, but I know it's good for them and I need the space from them. And so it's, they're just in this mind warp. That's interesting. So this ties
1: into something I've been seeing, which is, there isn't actually a right thing right now, right? I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't. I really want to see people, but the minute I walk into a crowded room with no one with masks on, my throat tightens, my chest tightens, my heart's, you know, pounding, my stomach hurts, and I'm smiling. I feel super incongruent and I want to leave, but I know I need to be here. I do it, I get home, I'm exhausted. I'm depressed. And that's not everyone's experience. I think there are people for whom gathering has felt safe. But that really speaks to the larger point. Is pandemic fatigue something we all have in the same way? And I think the answer is 100% no, right? Right. Everybody's experience is unique. But is the pandemic fatigue takeaway that there has to be permission to... Not know mm-hmm. to not do to
0: to to get off the hamster wheel. Right, right. I always think that a big kind of uh, is when you, somebody you say to somebody nobody gets up in the morning, and the first thing in their mind is how can I mess up my kid's life? <laughs> <laughs> like right. like yeah. even the worst yeah. parents, you just like, uh, crack uh, your <laughs> knuckles <laughs> like, ah, yeah. Ooh. Just yeah. <laughs> you don't. And even when you speak fail, for right? yourself, yeah. <laughs> I mean, come <laughs> <your> on. <laughs> but when I say that I'm like I know you're gonna fail it's it's gonna happen um but I know that's not your intention (laughs) and so stop being so mad at yourself for not nailing it on bullseye especially now especially right now you have to be okay with mediocre at times you know it's okay to do mac and cheese four nights a week if you're exhausted nobody's Wait, why would it not be it's, okay it, to do mac and, and cheese? And ch- yeah, what are you talking about? Well? Sorry, <laughs> we, we got real Uh-oh. judgy there. Reigning so <laughs> in, reigning in. But for some reason, as a therapist, when I say that and I give permission, their entire body language, yeah. just just oh, thank okay, thank you, thank you for saying that. I'm like, I don't, I'm not all-knowing, powerful person here. Don't put me on a pedestal. But some, they just need somebody to be objective in their life and say, yeah, you're you're doing you're doing fine. That's normal right? because nobody knows what that is anymore. Right. That's, that's the intersection. Mm-hmm. That's the intersection that, that
1: surviving a pandemic, being fatigued by a pandemic forces our bodies and our, our emotional selves into these corners that to really get out of in the healthiest way possible requires that we be okay with the idea one that we're not okay. And this is, I, I'm going to just call this out for a minute. At the start of all of this, Talking about it being okay to not be okay was new. I've heard some grumblings about that being a little bit cliche at this point. Cliche or not, it's true. Mm-hmm. And and I think maybe it needs to become cliche because, quite frankly, if you look at most cliches, they exist because they're... Needed. True, right? <laughs> so, um, but it, yeah, that's, that's an essential piece of, of, is the biggest, most helpful takeaway from all of this, that to evolve and evolve well, to to move through this, to unpack from the pandemic. Part of what we have to take out of our suitcases and maybe not ever put back in is this
0: idea that we have to tick all these boxes. Right, it goes along with the, um, the oatmeal comic that I sent you, which I just love. And we can, we'll get that for you guys, but. Well,
1: I can read the quote. Oh, I, this please was, deal. This was so powerful. This is a, uh, this comes from a, almost like a comic strip. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, the oatmeal.
1: About emotion. And this one particular quote, which just stuck with me, and it's following a, an explanation um, of why Pluto is no longer a planet and how basically this is because our definition of planet was bad mm-hmm. and that when we refined our definition of planet, we decided Pluto didn't belong there.
2: I'm still mad about that, by the way. Okay. Well, whatever. Whatever. <laughs>
1: We can set aside a little time for that later. Uh, And it goes like this. I'm not happy because our definition of happy isn't very good. It's a monochromatic word used to describe a rich, painful spectrum of human feeling. And that's it for me. Like that in a poetic comic strip nutshell summarizes how the evolution of emotion feels and looks for me. That's what I see is that we have... These very complex experiences,
0: and we are trying to put them in three categories. Happy, sad, mad. Right? It's as simple as if I ask you, are you happy? I can merely break you because you're like, I, I'm not happy. So I'm unhappy? I must be unhappy because right. there's only the two. It's it's this it's binary. binary. Yeah, it's this binary black and white thinking. I take so much out of, out of that comic. I give it to most of my clients because I love the fact it says I can be you know, running a marathon until my toes fall off, my feet are bleeding. In that moment, I'm pretty miserable physically, right? Like it's not right. great, but I'm joyous and I'm content and I'm curious. And I've challenged myself. But if you were to ask me if I was happy in that moment, I would I would say no, because it's a bad definition. Right. And right. I think that goes with normal. It's a bad definition, normal or unnormal. What? So do we have to
1: learn to talk about it that way. It, that You're right, there is a richness to the way in which that comic describes emotion that I think we can use as parents, as educators, as partners in terms of this idea that are you okay? No, not in this moment. In this moment I'm tired or I'm cranky or I, I happen to make costumes for uh, Cataldo and Uh, Not this year, thank goodness, but often it's a 60-student production. Hmm. And I love the director to bits, but she does like to give them a lot of costume changes. So sometimes it's a, like, 150-plus costume experience. (laughs) And I have a team, and they help me out, but it's a lot of work. And I'm often tired and cranky and stressed and absolutely ecstatic all at the same time because Hmm. it's creative and it's, it's... I don't know. There are a lot of of things about it that make me feel really, really good. But that's what, when I read that, when you sent it to me, that's what I reflected on. Like, oh yeah, that's absolutely my experience. But would I stop doing it? I retired last year, or I guess the start of the pandemic, and everyone around me just sort of smiled quietly and nodded their heads like, yeah, okay, uh uh-huh. And sure enough, the minute she asked, do you want to do this? I was like, oh my God, yes.
0: Right. Exactly. Because that, that euphoric feeling when you complete something and you've challenged yourself, that is pretty, like, you can't beat that. That's the chocolate.
1: <laughs> so can we take a minute to talk a little bit about what we're seeing on a practical level? What are we seeing for kids right now? Um,
0: we're seeing a, higher levels of depression and anxiety than and, and earlier. So mm-hmm. I'm getting an influx of younger and younger kids. Talk therapy, I really won't go younger than seven. Right, I do more parent integration at that point. However, what I see is a constant influx of very, very anxious children. Their anxiety can be school related, but mostly their anxiety is that they're going to forget something, they're going to miss something, and somebody's going to be mad at them for that. And um, so we we break a lot of that down. Um, there's a lot of anxiety about our parents' um, job insecurities. I have a couple kids where their parents have gone back to an office setting after being working at home, and they are very scared to be at home by themselves when before they were pretty fine with it. So you have a a heavier connection to that primary caregiver when before there was a little bit more space in that circle, right? I see a lot more drug and alcohol use, higher levels of sexual exploration, and I have a lot of my teenagers and younger asking questions that I'm sometimes unprepared to answer a, because it's out of my scope of practice, but B because they don't have anybody else they feel like they can talk to. Right. Um, that's scary. That's scary. I, I can't be all of those things as a therapist and I have to set that boundary, but that's, that's what I see in my own practice. What I'm recognizing in the school world is teachers being very burnt out and scared about the amount of trauma that they are learning about in the school setting. So from their students, from their students. So even talking to the teachers at my son's school, it's, well, I, I didn't know, like there's eight kids right now in my classroom that are experiencing poverty. And I'm like, they've always been, they're just talking to you about it. It's just, they don't know what else to say. They don't have any other people to talk to. So yes, you're having to kind of wear a couple hats right now, but it's okay. And and I, I honestly, my biggest thing right now is I worry about the mental health of the teaching community.
1: Yeah. That's a concern of mine. From an yeah. adult perspective, we are definitely seeing more caregiver fatigue. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's it's been on everyone's mind for a while, but this is more of the systemic longer term. Our teachers reaching
0: out, uh, yeah. people not working in critical care about but the, Yeah, and the, the role, ambi- the ambi- ambiguity, why is that is the hardest word to say, um, you know, and the lack of guidance and support. So they're having to do things that th- they don't have the correct training to do. Okay. Um, and not that that hasn't always happened, but um, I do see that. I also see administrators, the pressure for expectations, staffing concerns, um, the teachers constantly transitioning from face to face learning and the change, the change in their learners, like the way these children are taking information. I mean, when you go back to Luke being like, we've been in fight or flight for so long, right? The kids are in that. That means that they don't have the capacity to use that logical brain. They're they're literally flooded constantly coming from that amygdala and the cortisol and all that stuff. And so you can't sit down and be like, why aren't you getting this? I've gone through this five times. That's because that's not what they're, they don't have the capacity to even take it in. So I want to
1: pause here and break this down a tiny bit sure. because I think it's really helpful for people to hear what's behind that. You're talking about what happens to the human body right. when we are in f- some form of fight, flight, or freeze. And I'm just going to put a few and, and mm-hmm. add in, as you want, tenants out here that I think are really important for us to to bring with us. One is that being in a state of fight or flight, having an activated autonomic nervous system, it's not a like... I was on level one and now I'm on level four. It is much more of a ladder. We move in and out. We are supposed to move up and down and also feel like we have some autonomy over moving up and down. The pandemic has meant many of us are stuck in some level of fight or flight and what happens to the body as we go from a safe space to a space of fight, flight, or even freeze, is that the body is designed to reduce our access to certain aspects of functioning that just aren't deemed necessary for surviving. So deep breathing, eye contact, brain cell development, prefrontal cortex, contemplation, cause and effect, apologies, problem solving, it's, you know, and so this is an important thing. And what Ingrid is really talking about that I think from my perspective should be on everyone's mind is first of all, this is happening to adults too. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to work. We feel like work is so much more stressful. We feel far less accomplished. We we feel like we're bringing more work home. Why? Because we are tired sooner because our bodies are, again, in some state of fight or flight. And and just to exemplify, walking into a store where everyone looks different from you can trigger this. And the reason I say it that way is it does not matter if you have the mask on or you have the mask off. Walking into a store where everyone else is doing the opposite of what you are is going to put your body in some state of discomfort. Exactly, And I can't emphasize this enough, no matter how confident you are that your choice is the right one, if someone is making the opposite choice, you will have at least a moment of comparative analysis. And that doesn't feel safe. That is tiring on the body. And so then we see what Ingrid is talking about kids who are not learning well, teachers who are trying to manage. I mean, I can only imagine all the kids in their classroom, all at different levels of safety, all learning in a different way. And then the
0: teachers themselves. Mm. It's worth, (laughs) it's worth at least putting in the forefront of our listeners' minds, because I think, again, it might be that key to give permission. Right. To recognize that, oh, there's something happening in my body that I'm not, I don't have any control over. And so it's like, okay, I give myself permission because I can't control that. I can say it. My body's got a whole different visceral reaction to what's going on around me. Right. You know, I, I think that we all yearn for these simple joys, um, embracing family, dining out, seeing a smile and hidden. We're intrinsically social beings and we're hardwired to connect. Um, and through these connections, we form strong attachments mm-hmm. and those strong attachments combat our own feelings of loneliness and they combat our own feelings of isolation within ourselves. So if, if we go back to that being maybe what we strive for, I think the other things will start to fall into place eventually. The connection, the connection. I mean, that's the hardwired piece is that we are looking for connection with another human
1: being. It's interesting because what you're also really advocating for is that we stop trying to fit everyone in a box and mm. we just notice people for who they are. Exactly. That idea that we could have 30 people in a room, each of them at a similar yet different level of learning and have enough space in that
0: room to allow them all to be okay. Mm-hmm to be on whatever part of that spectrum of feeling that they need to have and know that it's okay and it's beautiful and there's a way out of it. I, I try to tell kids, i like, I want you to think of yourself as like a filter. So when that emotion comes in, I want it to go into your body and you say, oh, I know what that is. That's right. anger or that's sadness or that's anxiety or that's worry or fear. And then I want you to sift it out of you and know, and just recognize it, hold space for it. It's not gonna stay there forever. It will move through if you let it. But if you don't, it does sit in the dark corner and it will sneak up on you. And with kids, usually the first one you'll see is anger. Right. I'm trying to think
1: if there are pieces that I would add here for adults, but I think it's all pretty thematically the same, just in bigger human form. We want the same things. We're struggling with the same things. Maybe we're not in a classroom. Maybe we're not quite so on the hamster wheel academically. But I think we're seeing the same pieces. Adults are tired, but also struggling with that sense that I'm supposed to be accomplishing things and I'm not. Mm-hmm. And does that mean I'm bad? Yes,
0: exactly. That's what we were going back to. Yeah. It's like not moving forward is bad. being sedentary means I'm lazy or I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's this hardwired thought in my brain um, because that's what I grew up with. And so I have to force myself. Okay. You know what? You're okay. Sitting here in this right now in this moment is exactly where you're supposed to be.
1: So if we were to summarize moving forward, right in three weeks, about that. Mm-hmm. About that. Masks come off at school. All of our kids, or indoors in general. I have to admit, I heard the news and then I was like, yeah, I'm not going there right now. Because it just was like, the minute I read it all, I have to process it all and take it to work and figure out what I'm going to do there. And so I just put that in a little corner, which by the way, anyone listening is also welcome to do for Please. the moment. Mm-hmm. But it is at the very least the start. Thoughts about how... How we talk about it, how we help our loved ones, whether they're our little loved ones or our adult loved ones, move through this, begin unpacking in a way that honors their bodies, that honors these feelings.
0: That's a, (laughs) that is hitting me at home because my, um, I have a seven-year-old, first grader. He's never gone to school without a mask. Wow. So he doesn't know what even that looks like. And I wasn't going to tell him <laughs> because of my own fear of being like, oh, I can't dangle the carrot. <laughs> what if it goes away? Right. And his little seven year old brain's like, what? You told me. <laughs> I can't do it. But we were getting his haircut yesterday, and of course it came up. It was like I had told him that we are about to go to Disneyland. Oh, wow. He was like, Mom, I'm going to see what my teacher looks like, and I'm going to see my friends' faces. And I don't even know what that's going to be like. I can eat. <laughs> Throughout the day? <laughs> like, he was really excited about snack. I was like, I don't think you're going to snack throughout the day, but I like the idea that you don't have to take your <laughs> mask off. <laughs> you know, I'm a seven-year-old brain, right? But it's a lot because my first fear as a mom was like, well, I can't – what if it goes back? And then I have mm-hmm. to tell him – I have to have this conversation again, buddy. Sorry. you got to do it. This is the right thing. And then off and on, and I'm just like, ooh – I don't know if I want to go there yet. I don't want to get there. I don't want to get excited. And that I think is my, that is my trauma response to the last two years of being like, well, can I, can I put my toe out? No toe in, you know, back to, I'm a rule follower by just, you know, no child. I follow the rules. Mm. (laughs) No child left behind. Get in line, everybody.
1: I have to admit that when I think about all of this, I have in real time, like right now, my own emotional and definite. Physiological response: the thought of seeing everyone's faces actually makes me almost want to cry, mm-hmm. from a mix of joy and excitement and awareness of how exhausting that is going to be.
0: I, Meg, I. Have been doing in-person therapy throughout the entire pandemic, mm-hmm. mostly because I work with young children. However, I have a couple adults on my caseload. I have never seen the bottom half of their face, right. and I've worked with them for two years. Yep. There's been one-offs where we might do telehealth, and we're like, no, we'll just wait. I'm I'm excited to see their smiles. I really am, but I'm also like, that is going to be a whole learning curve of rec- like reading faces again, <laughs> and I'm a little I'm a little nervous. I'm also a realist you know like I can I can I can adapt but that's baffling to me and exciting but I'm like oh wow is that what you look like (laughs) and that's what I want
1: people to take away from this today in particular is we're tired I mean we just spent the last however long hour talking about the fact all the different ways in which we are tired and and how it's impacted us. And now we're facing this significant change, this carrot that has the potential to lead us to whatever version of new normal Mm. post pandemic will be. Is it okay for us to be careful with ourselves because it has the potential to be exhausting for a little while. Mm. I actually did. A therapy session recently over telehealth for someone I see in person, and I didn't even understand why I was confused. <laughs> it took me like 20 minutes to realize, "Oh, I'm that's never- all of
0: you) <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I hope my face isn't off-putting. That's my big thing. I'm like, what if they sit there across from me and they're like, oh, God, I did not think that was going to be the bottom half of your face. It is not okay. I wish, I a new yeah, it would be
1: fascinating <laughs> if someone had had the time and energy or even the need, which there really isn't, to have done research about like draw a picture, like have sketch artists, what do you think the person looks like? And like compare because I'm off. Yeah. I'm totally off. I just want to tell you all. Um, That's true. You know, this is going to be one of the most fascinating moments because I think we're all so ready but to be able to also talk about the fact that ready doesn't mean impact less right and we all have different starting lines and capacities mm-hmm. and ways of
0: communicating yeah yep. I love that um are we doing I'm gonna give you my takeaway because I feel like it's a good time I feel like we're ready we're ready okay so I I've, I have this this quote that is just it it feels right. So the expectation that we can be immersed in suffering and loss daily and not be touched by it is as unrealistic as expecting to be able to to walk through water without getting wet. And that's by Naomi Rachel Remen, and it was from a recent conference that I went to. But I'm soaking wet, (laughs) and I'm okay with it. But yeah, you it's the I understand that I can't not ex, you know, experience this alongside. And you as a parent and you as a teacher, you're not failing because you feel everything, that you, that you were there, it's, you were. You had to do one of the hardest things because you had to continue showing up when it was the hardest thing for you to do. Right. And you did it. Right. So go easy on yourself. Go out and buy the gold star and give it to yourself because you've earned it you you know you're walking away from this um or walking with it or however it looks but it's unrealistic to think that it hasn't affected you in some capacity right and that's we're all a little bit
1: drenched (laughs) i think the only thing i would add since my original takeaway was going to be all about how feelings are biologically hardwired we sort of kicked that one in early here's what I would leave everyone with. The concept or the practice of noticing how you feel, naming it, and then just noticing, sort of springboarding off of your idea of a filter. If we can practice this, noticing how we feel, naming it, where it is in our body, and then just sitting with it without judgment, It allows not only for that feeling to move through us, it allows for us to have space for the idea that other people have feelings too and that those feelings might not look like, sound like, feel like, or be like ours. If this is the lesson that we can all practice and come away from this pandemic from, we stand a really great chance of figuring out how to sit in communities together with space for everyone. Mm,
0: that's so beautiful. Can we have that? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Let's do that.
1: Thank you everyone for listening. Absolutely. Thank we'll you. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.
2: I got so much out of that conversation. I hope you did too. Uh, a couple days after we recorded, Meg went on a trip and then came back and was like, I, I actually have a conclusion that I'd like to record. So I'm going to splice that in now. Here's Meg's final thoughts.
1: So what's the real takeaway of this conversation for all of us adults? Part of the reason Ingrid and I talk a fair bit about kids, certainly, is because we both have them. But it's also because right now, the things that we are seeing happen for our community's young people, their responses are really illustrative of what's happening for the rest of us as well. What comes next? This process of unpacking from a pandemic will not be the same for anyone. Because it's not possible for all of us to walk into the same new situation for the first time and expect that we will all feel the exact same way. Someone simply will not feel safe enough. Someone else will. One person's nervous system will be activated while others will not. And right now to do this well, both ways need to be right and neither can be wrong. We have to create space for the idea that there is more than one way to do something while holding on to the idea that we can still all have common ground. For example, we all want things to return to normal. Admittedly, this is a bit tricky because when we don't feel safe, when our nervous systems are activated, then we're hardwired to seek safety, a process that is like the rest of this, while thematically similar for all, uniquely different for each. So the takeaway, take your time, move slowly, and make lots of space for the idea that your way isn't the only way. That's the takeaway. That's how we get through this together. That's how we create space for a return to common ground.
2: You know, just briefly, one of the things that really, really bothers me about Meg is that she nailed both the intro and the outro pretty much in one take, which is infuriating to me. If you look at Meg's track in the editing software, it's like this unbroken, unblemished, beautiful thing. And if you look at mine, it's like uh, Edward Scissorhands with the topiary animals. (laughs) Thanks again to Meg and Ingrid. Thanks to Kayla Brooke and Valerie Osier for providing support on this episode. We will see you next time. Be safe, y'all.